Amen. Amen. I love where we can come and just worship freely. And uh, even though uh, we have various imperfections here and trying to get our screens done and internet and everything that's going on, and we appreciate, first of all, I appreciate the grace that you give to us. And then also appreciate the, the grace that the Lord gives to us as we um, do our best to come and worship, uh, even imperfectly as, as it is. But I think uh, the Lord appreciates when we come to him nonetheless, I'm not really worried about how it looks, how it sounds, that we just have our hearts in the right place. And that's, I think that's what we've been seeing through our series in the, the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. So if you would turn with me there in your copy of God's Word, we're in Revelation chapter 3. You know, the longer that I get to live on this earth, I realize the importance of communication. Communication is something that drives every one of us. And while, you know, I, I'm somewhat of a professional speaker standing here before you and, and preaching every week and, and preaching at conferences and different things like that, we are all uh, have to, to be mindful of our communication to one another, whether it be verbal or body language, there's so much to take in when it, when it comes to communication. It's especially complicated as we're now redefining, I guess we've always been redefining different words, whether you talk about slang or just straight up saying, you know, blue doesn't mean blue anymore, it means red. And so you have to understand and know uh, what people are talking about, where they're coming from, so that one, we can have an understanding and have uh, a, a legitimate type of conversation, but it's getting harder and harder to be able to do so. You know, when I grew up, we used to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. I don't know if the kids say that anymore these days, but um, by and large, this is true, right? You know, uh, words, you know, you can let them bounce off of you. And you can take it to mean whatever it means. You know, take it a little further, right? We're family here. I can, I can share this with you. You know, when I came up, we used to play the dozens, what we're called the dozens. And that was basically that you would insult the other person until they gave up, right? <laughs> you would throw insult after insult until somebody just gave up. And it was, you know, all in good fun. And out of the dozens, right, it, we, we, it, it was, you had to have your, your mama jokes, you know, that, that often came into play. And this is where you really had to have thick skin. Uh, you remember your mama jokes, some of you? Or at least heard of your mama jokes? Like, uh, your mama's so fat, uh, she brought a spoon to the Super Bowl? Or, or how about, your mama tea so yellow, I can't believe it's not butter. Your mama's so dumb, she stared at a cup of orange juice for 12 hours because it said concentrate. Oof, wow. Everybody, so when we would play these games, everybody knew they were jokes, just jokes. And we were having fun together, and we would throw these barbs at one another. But there was always that one guy who took it just a little bit too far. It was always that at least one person that would go and get his feelings hurt, and then he went for attack, and he, it got a little too real. And then all of a sudden, man, sometimes some fights broke out or whatever. I, mean, I wasn't always a preacher, so. It, <laughs> but when, when, we're, when we're looking at this, I mean, the fundamental purpose, we're, we're having fun. But the reality is sometimes words can hurt. Some, sometimes they can be taken out of context or taken offense with. When, when I'm coaching or counseling anybody, uh, one of the questions I often ask is, is that true? Because when I'm talking to somebody and they're, they're sharing what's going on and somebody said this about me or did these things, and I say, well, is that true? Because with the your mama jokes, it, it was no, no harm, no foul, because we, I knew it wasn't true. And they knew it wasn't true. Most of them didn't know my mom, and if they did, they wouldn't say the things that they said. But first and foremost, you got to ask, is that true? Does your mother really take a spoon to the Super Bowl looking for chili? 
I mean, does does your mother really stare at orange juice because it says con- does your mother wear combat boots? Is it true? So when somebody says something about us, uh, our family life, or it's easy just to dismiss it, right? We see somebody out on the street, they say something about us, like they don't know me. It doesn't matter. You let that bounce off of you unless there's some truth to it. Unless you, you hear what they say and you start to, to say, well, I kind of think that about myself. And then you, you start to get emotional and you draw an offense. If you know and believe there's a bit of truth, you start to take it personally. And if you think the same about yourself, then you like, uh, I just can't let that stand. Words can be heavy and they cut like a knife, even though we say words can never hurt me. But what if somebody said to you, I can't stand you? What if they said, you're worthless? You're good for nothing. You're a waste of space. You make me sick. When I see you, I throw up in my mouth a little bit. That's harsh. How would you feel if somebody said that to you? I suppose it would depend on who said it and the environment that you're in and what you thought about yourself. If we're a stranger again, I'd imagine you wouldn't pay it any mind. But what if it was your best friend? What if it was your spouse or your parents? How would you feel then? How would you feel if that someone was Jesus? I saw somebody sit up straight when I said that. Yes, ouch. What if that person was Jesus who said that? Well, that's what we find in this letter this morning to Laodicea. This letter that's written to the church there. This church was so bad. Their spiritual condition was so poor that it was nauseating. It actually made Christ ill. Just the thought of them, the view of them. This, brothers and sisters, is definitely a wake-up call. Turn with me to your copy of God's Word, Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. To the angels of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of the creation of God. And we'll stop there. I want to dig into this. There's so much theology here in just this one verse. The amen literally means truly or so be it. You know, when, when we pray, we usually end it with amen. And, and while I'm preaching, I hear some amens, or at least I hope I hear some amens. And that means truly or so be it. This amen is a common biblical expression signifying uh, certainty and veracity, trueness. Our Lord is completely trustworthy, and that's what he's telling them. He's completely trustworthy and perfectly accurate in the witness to the truth of God. And in fact, Jesus is the truth. And he tells us this in John 14 and 6, where it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He goes on to say that he is beginning of creation. And he says this in order to combat some heresy that's going on in the day there. And this is something similar that we see in the letter to Colossae because they had the same heresy that was going on at the time. And this was the heresy that Jesus was a created being. And so here in the scripture, they know what's happening and going on. And, it's, and so we, we got to make sure we have right doctrine. And Jesus himself says, look, this is not the case. In Colossians 1 and 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But for by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So we wanted to be very clear. Here's what people are saying about me that is not true. Let's get the record straight. While uh, Christ was, he had a beginning as a man, uh, but as God, he was the beginning. And we have this heresy going on today. You might uh, encounter some of these people that try to refute Christianity. And, well, they just thought of Jesus in the Council of Nicaea and, and all this madness. They, they, they're proving not only do they not know Bible, but they don't even know church history. And so I want to be sure that you all are aware and equipped of these things that are going on. Not only are they happening here, but they continue to be perpetuated even here in 2022. Now in verses 15 and 16, as we go on to read this letter, we, we contrast this with the other letters that we see. The Lord doesn't have anything good to say about the Laodicean church. He only has condemnation. Verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, don't accuse me of being vulgar this morning. This is coming from Scripture, so I'm just preparing you. Laodicea was the wealthiest of the seven cities that we see talked about, um, that we've talked about over these past few weeks. And the city was an important commercial city in the region. They were known for their banking industry. They did um, a lot of wool manufacturing and they had a medical school there. They had a lot of things. But one major issue that plagued this city was their water supply. Heropolis was a nearby city that was famous for its medical hot springs. People would be, they would go from miles and miles around to, to, to go in and, and get into these hot springs and kind of be rejuvenated. You know, like a, a hot water bottle or, you know, a hot pad that we put on our back. I mean, how medicinal that can be. And then also in nearby Colossae, they were known for their cold, refreshing mountain stream. Man, what we wouldn't give on a very hot day to have an ice cold drink of water. Sometimes, you know, if you're really active, we see athletes do this all the time and, and go take an ice bath. They jump into this ice and that also has a rejuvenating power. But Laodicea, on the other hand, they had this muddy, undrinkable water. So what they did, they had to, to, they had to build this underground aqueduct to get water into the city. The water that was there definitely wasn't drinkable, so they had to pour some water in. And so when they did that from Heropolis, from the hot springs, by the time they got to Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. It was lukewarm. The system just, uh, they thought it was good, but it just didn't work out. It wasn't hot nor refreshing. And, and in fact, when visitors would drink this lukewarm water, they would end up uh, vomiting after drinking it. That's how gross it was. That's how nasty it was. They, they just couldn't take it. They couldn't handle it. Jesus is using this fact to describe the spiritual well-being of the church. And this is where words cut like a knife. He says, just like the water you're piping into the city, y'all make me sick. The Lord does this intentionally, knowing that these words will slack, slap them awake, will get them to sit up straight in their seats. And even though they think they've got it going on, they are suddenly hit with this major dose of reality. What do you mean? 
We've got all these things going for us. Look at the big buildings we built. Look at all the, 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 the money that we bring into this place. Look at all the nice stuff we have. How can we, what do you mean? How do we make you sick? In the original language, this spit you out of your mouth is put very nicely here in the text. But if you look at the original language, um, it's, it's, it confers the meaning of contempt. And it literally means to, to vomit. And so this is what Christ is saying. He, I mean, this is, this is how, how urgent and bad it is. He, he's like, when, when I think about you, y'all really make me sick. I mean, the thought about you makes me want to vomit because of who you are and what you're doing or not doing. The, you know, this cold water or the hot water, they, they were both positives. You know, I've, I've, heard, I've heard this misconstrued often. and like, well, they're saying that they want you to be cold and not hot, or they want you to be hot and not cold. No, the reality is, is one or the other is not in the middle. Be cold or hot, but both of them are positive. You see, the cold water, again, was refreshing in the heat. The hot water was a tonic when it's cold. Like, I mean, nobody wants lukewarm coffee, right? Or when you go to a restaurant, like, let me get the lukewarmest of your teas. I've never heard that before. You see, the Lord, what he's communicating here is he wants us to be useful. He wants us to, to be able to do something. There was healing power in the hot springs of Heropolis and the soothing, refreshing water from Colossae. What what is he supposed to do with this lukewarm water that makes people vomit? This, this tepid mess that just comes in. What, what are we supposed to do with that? They were hypocrites who professed to know Christ, but they didn't truly belong to them. Instead of being hot or cold, Laodicea was just meh. And I think the, deep down they knew it. I think deep down they knew, well, you know, if something comes up, we're just going to throw money at it. But they knew, like, I should actually do something. I shouldn't actually wait for somebody else and pay somebody else to do it. I should do it myself. But, I mean, I got the cash laying around. I'll just throw cash at it. These folks were spiritually apathetic. The letter begins by Christ saying, I know your works, but there's no works to really speak of. These folks were probably a timid witness. So, I mean, we are supposed to be disciples who make disciples. I imagine these folks were just going out and people need to hear the good news, but they weren't the ones to provide it. These folks were probably unmotivated about prayer. Like, well, I mean, I'll kind of pray and maybe sometimes I'll pray for meals or somebody says, you know, they bring me something and say, I'll pray for you, then I'll forget later. Well, I know prayer services on Wednesday nights, but I don't really have time to, to get over there. I can't even, you know, uh, fire up the Zoom to get on. They didn't have Zoom back then, but I imagine if they did, they would be too busy to even do that. They're indifferent about the sick and imprisoned. Oh, somebody else will take care of that. I'll, I'll give to the United Way. I'll give to somebody else who can do something about it. Now, these folks are self-centered. They didn't stand for anything. They had gotten to a point where they refused to do anything for Christ and had become hardened and self-satisfied. Self-reliance had become their God. They didn't have to pray, they thought. Well, what do I need to pray about? I, I can buy anything that I want. If something comes up, like we got the medical center down the way. I can just go by and buy my place in line. I don't have to wait. I can get all the medicine I can want or need, and I don't need to pray for healing. I don't need to pray for jobs. I, I can have any job that I want to. Self-reliance, their money, their, their bank account, their success had become their God. They were probably much like people that we have here today that don't want to be fanatical about religion. Like, well, I don't want to offend anybody. That's their truth. This is my truth. By the way, truth doesn't work that way. It's either true or false. 
It's, it's either on or off. You, you can't have varying degrees of truth. <laughs> That's not how truth works. But these folks were probably going around and saying, well, you know, I'm not going to offend them. I'm not going to worry about it. They're, they're fine to think that way. That, that, to me, shows a lack of love, a lack of care. Like if you care about something, somebody, you want to warn them about what's happening, what's going on. You, you want to say, hey, a, a bus is about to head in your direction. You need to move. But they're like, ah, you know, I don't want to offend them. Maybe they like getting hit by buses. Brothers and sisters, I want you to take inventory of yourself today. As we read through the text, I, man, this is home for us here in the United States and, and to have to be flourishing the way that we do. We want to talk about the 1%, but if you look at the, the people around the world, us here living in the U.S., we're in the 1%. And we don't have any cares or worries that we have to attend to. We are blessed beyond measure and we take it for granted. For some of us, Self-reliance has become our God as well. We need to take some inventory here today. Because the fact of the matter is this, the Lord will not tolerate your indifference. You can't play the middle. That's not what we're about. That's not what Christ was about. And if you call yourself a Christian, a Christ follower, you ought to look like Christ. You ought to be like Christ. You ought to act like Christ. And Christ didn't play the fence. You can't sit on your hands and act like this doesn't apply to you. Because, again, if we look at the reality, is we, we just can't afford to sit on our hands and, and act and, and wait for somebody else to go and do the work. Do the work that you're equipped to do. Do the work that you've been called to do. You don't have time to wait for tomorrow to be obedient to God's commands. Tomorrow might not come for you. And I don't know the condition of your heart. I don't know where you are today. But you've got to face up to your facts for yourself. You've got to look at how you're living your life. And you got to ask yourself, are you really living for Christ? Are you truly giving your all for him? Are you in full submission to Christ? Are you completely obedient to him? I want to let that hang in the air for a minute. And I imagine some of you already turned me off like I this. Pastor, that's too deep. I don't, I don't want to go there with you today. But we've got to. Don't zone out here this morning. Answer these questions for yourself because the reality is that Jesus knows. Jesus already knows the answer. He knows who you are. He knows what you're doing. He knows what you're not doing. You can hide it from me. You can put on a face for me and your family and your other brothers and sisters. On the outside, you might look great and pristine. But what matters is what's inside and what's going on there. Just because you don't think about it, just because you want to ignore what we're talking about right now, and just because you want to sweep it under the rug, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's not a reality. And I know what it means to run from the Lord. I, I did so for many years of my life. But God knows. So as you consider this, I mean, really think about it. Where are you? If you call yourself a Christian, are you really living for him? Are you really in full submission to him? Are you really obedient to him. Consider this. Now, I know that's convicting, but stay with me because I, as we go through the letter, you'll get some encouragement. So think about these things. So stick with me so you can see the grace that God provides later in this letter, okay? Verse 17. 
is because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. Again, they say, we got everything that we can need. Again, they're the self-reliance is their God. They can go and buy and do whatever it is that they wanted to do. But Christ is saying, hey, even if you say all these things, the reality is that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Whoa. The, the challenge that we have is that this indifference leads to us acknowledging where, where we are spiritually. And we like to throw around this word blessed because all the stuff that we accumulate, I'm blessed because I got this, I'm blessed because I got this job, I'm blessed because I got the promotion, I'm blessed because I got the car, I got the big house, I got all the friends, I got, I got, I got, I got, I got. But that's not what true blessing looks like. You might say one thing when, when you know the truth is altogether different. You know, and people know, we see this with celebrities all the time and people who have a lot of money they, they are they're, they're depressed. They have a, a similar uh, 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 rate of suicide. They are ostracized from the people that they say they love because this money is the center of everything that they have. It's not the answer. While you think you might fool others, you cannot fool God. Try as you might. And again, I'm speaking from experience. I tried to fool God and sweep it under the table, but <laughs> he had to slap me up inside the head a couple of times like, who do you think you are? I created everything that there is. I know everything that is. I, as a matter of fact, he knows what you're about to do. You think you can hide from God. Some people assume that this, this numerous material possessions are a sign of God's spiritual blessings, but we see here in Laodicea, they had this, this wealthy city. They had a church that's wealthy. They had everything that you could ever dream of. The problem is that whatever the Laodiceans, they could, they could see and buy, whatever they could uh, just reach out to and throw some money at, they, they uh, thought it was more valuable than what was unseen and what was eternal. They didn't have their minds on what was yet to come. They had their minds on right now. And that's what mattered to them. That's what mattered most. They thought money could solve all of their problems. They had a, enough wealth that they felt like they just didn't need anything. That's why sometimes we have to go through some struggles. We have to go through some pain in order to recognize and understand how blessed we are. Because we get like everything is going well. We tend to, I'll just talk about me. Sometimes I tend to forget where God has brought me, how far he's brought me, what he's done and what he continues to do. And I have to be reminded about how much I need to rely on him. That all this wasn't because I'm so great and so smart, because I'm not. <laughs> it's because of how great God is. We often need that reminder. Laodicea, they, they have so much wealth, they're like, well, all churches should be like us. What's the problem? Just, just work harder, do more things, make more money, and you'll be all right. For us here at First Baptist Brook, we need to be especially careful about comparing ourselves to the megachurch down the street. And again, I'll speak for myself because as a pastor and, you know, walking through this building and I often say is, is just held together by duct, duct tape and bubble gum. And to go visit the pastors down the street and they got all this stuff going on. They got signs and they got a, a big blown out you know, coffee center and they've got uh, these rooms and that room and everything. I'm like, man, this is, this is so cool. They got all the programs. They got all the people. They're doing so many different things. But I have to step back and take my mind off of what God is actually doing here. We have blessings going on here too. They don't, they don't have the same history that we have. God isn't using the people necessarily in the same way that he's using people here. We don't have to be envious of their fancy building and their programs. 
Because God is at work here too. I once heard the story of a missionary who visited a megachurch here in the U.S. And he sat through an entire service and was invited on stage to speak at the end of the service. And, and when he takes the mic, he thanks them for the invitation and the wonderful service that he got to uh, see and attend. And he, he said he'd never seen anything like it. He'd never seen the, the lights and uh, the, the screens and the video and the, the smoke machines. and all. He'd never seen anything like it before in his life. It was just spectacular what he got to witness that morning. He says he was amazed by all that they managed to do without the Lord. It's like, I'm amazed at how much you're able to do and accomplish without the need of, of faith. Because where he was going around the world as a missionary, everything that they had, everything that they did required prayer. What he was experiencing in the, in the mission field was everything that was being done had to be a miracle because it wasn't happening any other way. What he experienced is everything that they did in the mission field required reliance on God. He says, I'm amazed that y'all just, y'all good. Y'all able to do it on your own. Mm. I have a friend who teaches at a seminary in Haiti as a missionary. And their, uh, their campus got taken over by a gang. That's, that's the reality. They're, they're teaching over there. They're, they're uh, loving on the community, training up pastors. And then one day, they, they're, they're not able to get into their campus anymore. That's reality. But are they blessed? I would say so. They just start meeting in houses. They start, they continue to be obedient. We're not able to go on campus, but we can stand out here and pray in front of our campus that the Lord will get this gang out, that we can meet in our homes and still continue the training. We got work to do. And they weren't going to be stopped. They were, their obedience was not going to be stopped. This wealth, luxury, and ease can make people feel confident, satisfied, and complacent. And no matter how much you own, no matter how much money you make, you have nothing if you don't have a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing. The external appearance of prosperity in Laodicea didn't reflect the condition of their heart and their level of fellowship with God. Jesus told earlier in the Gospels, like, it's like whitewashed tombs. Like, on the outside, you look good, but on the inside, it's rotten bones, deteriorating. They, in Laodicea, were spiritually uncommitted. They were carnal. They were compromising. And they may have had a great organization. Don't get me wrong. They might have had, had ran great programs, People come from miles around to, to see and participate in, but they weren't a good church. At least by Jesus' estimation, they weren't doing what they were called to do. In fact, the, the Lord says they were, again, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. By the way, all opposites of what they thought they were. They thought they had all these things, and Jesus says, no, you don't. Since Jesus called them out, they had to face this reality. They were forced to see what they had become. But fortunately, Jesus, in his grace, doesn't uncover all these things just so that they can be down and, and just be lost because of it. Jesus doesn't uncover this to leave them in that state. And, and when it goes on here, I hope it was encouraging for the church in Laodicea. And by the way, I hope it's encouraging for us too. In verse 18, it says, I have advised you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself 
and that shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. While Laodicea was known for his wealth, again, they actually aren't rich. They're spiritually poor. The stuff they had accumulated means nothing. And Jesus calls them to repent or turn away from their sin. Christ tells them that they should buy gold from him. And he was speaking of some real spiritual treasures. You got all this stuff, but you got nothing spiritually. You're spiritually bankrupt. While they were proud of their clothes and their dye industries, Christ said, well, they should be trying to get his white garments, meaning his righteousness. They had a medical center there, and they were known for their eye solve that was solving a lot of eye issues. He says, well, what you really should be worried about is is um, coming and, and taking the medicine that only Christ can provide. Christ tells them to get the medicine from him to heal their eyes so they can actually see what true value looks like. So they could see that the, the value wasn't in their possessions, but it was in a relationship with God. That's where the value comes from. Their possessions and achievements were nothing compared to the kingdom of God. And of course, he's saying you can buy all this stuff, but it, we're not talking about handing over money. That's what got them in this place. He, he wasn't talking about, well, instead of spending money over here, you need to spend money with me. No, he was not saying that. The currency of these purchases was their faith. The currency of this would be their trust. The currency is their radical dependence on him. That's what he said you should be doing. The church at Laodicea is, you know, facing God's discipline unless they turn away from all these things. Unless they turn away from them, they turn away from their lukewarm ways, and they turn back to him. As we talk this morning, I want you to be asking yourself, are you lukewarm? Are you lukewarm in your devotion to God? I'm happy to see you here on a Sunday morning. I'm happy to see you all online here on a Sunday morning, but is this it? Is this the only time that you interact with God and his people for an hour, a week? Or are you spending time with him in Scripture? Are you spending time with him in prayer? Are you spending time with with God's people and encouraging them Because the reality is that God may discipline his people in order to just get them to wake up. Sometimes we need that. We, we need a slap across the head in order to, 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 to get us out of our slumber. He might need you to slap out of to snap out of your un, uncaring attitude that, that you might have. And his discipline is not to punish, his discipline is to wake you up to understand and realize where you are, where you're headed, so that he can bring you back to him. And this is like any other loving father that we might see. You know, Christ disciplines those he loves. We see this in Proverbs 3 and 12. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, just as a father disciplines a son in whom he delights. I know we got a lot of kids running around these days that are undisciplined. You have to question the, the amount of love. Like, you can't get away in the world not hearing no. And sometimes our kids need to hear no. Because when you get out of the real world, let me tell you what you're going to hear. No. And they're, they're, gonna be, they're not going to be prepared. A parent that loves their children would discipline them for their own good. And it was, hey, this was hard for me to take it. You know what? When, when I turned, it was about 30 or so. I remember calling my dad. And it's like, I'm sorry. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, he just straight up out of blue. He's like, what happened? He's like, I, I said, I'm sorry for all those times I didn't listen to you. I understand now 
what you were teaching me in the moment. I'm slow. I'm, I'm sorry. But now I understand what you were trying to say, what you were doing for me, because it could have turned out way different. Father disciplines those he loves. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Christ calls us to repent or to turn away. Repent is a, a churchy word, but it just means, hey, you're going in this direction. You're going in the wrong way. You need to turn around. You need to change your mind and go towards Jesus. We need to turn away from our sin of indifference before the Lord intervenes in judgment. However, you can avoid God's discipline by just drawing near to him again through confession, through service, through worship, and studying his word. You could do that. Just turn to him and do what he called you to do. Don't be like me. Don't be hard-headed. Spend your time with him. Get to know him. Be obedient to him. And I hope you're encouraged by that that the Lord will uh, be there for you. There's, there's more encouragement, though, as we close this morning in verse 20. It says, Behold, I stand in the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. Hmm. Here's Jesus outside of the door of the church knocking. The church is wilding out, doing their own thing, thinking they're good all by themselves. And here's, here's Christ knocking. And he, sometimes we can be so consumed in, in the world and what the world has to offer that we're so busy with all these worldly pleasures that we don't notice that Christ is knocking. We're so trumped up in everything that's going on and, and enjoying ourselves in our flesh that we don't notice that God in his grace is there trying to get our attention. We don't notice Christ is trying to enter. And ultimately, we need to remember that the pleasures of this world, all the money, all even the security, all these material possessions are dangerous and in fact, they're, they're just temporary satisfactions. It's here and it's gone. All this stuff makes us indifferent to God who offers lasting satisfaction, who is ultimately fulfilling. And, and please don't, don't misunderstand this. When, when we think about God, what the world has told us when we think about Jesus, that, that we have this caricature of, of Jesus who is meek, who's not strong, who's got this, this, this uh, long flowing hair, this Pantene commercial. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. So, so don't get it twisted. Christ is not knocking on the door like a homeless person looking for some place to stay. That's not the Jesus who's knocking. The, the one who is knocking, he's knocking as the master of the house. He's the master of the church. And he expects his servants to be awake, alert, and ready to respond immediately when he arrives. He's not like, hello, anybody in there? Hey. No, he is the master of the house. Waiting for his servants to come. Waiting for them to, to open up the door. They're ready. They're waiting on him to return. That's who is knocking at the door. It's a whole different energy. That's the Jesus that we're talking about. And the one who opens the door, the one who opens the door will have Christ come in with them. Like some of the other letters we talked about, I want you to notice this, this grace that's extended here. You know, he could just cut them, cut them off. Like, look, you guys make me sick. You're done. That's it. No more. He could do that, but instead, he waits patiently and graciously. He comes and knocks 
on the door, uh, waiting for the alert servants to let him in. This is an ex- a great amount of grace that he's extending. Instead of turning his back, he knocks. And if they would just repent, then Jesus will come in and take his place in the church. They would just turn away from their ways, turn toward Jesus, he would come in. And I love just this, this personal picture, this, this close personal fellowship that he wants to have with his people. That he wants to come in. We're we Baptists. We, we love to sit and eat, right? How good is that for us to have a fellowship with one another and to break bread, have some fried chicken together and talks and laughs? How good is that? Knowing that Jesus wants that same thing with us. Man, that he wants to come in and fellowship and, and sup with his people. How intimate is that, that the Lord desires to be with his people? Revelation 3, 21 through 22, we'll end with this. It says, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here Jesus promises that the one who opens the door, one who lets them in, who is also a victor and and, an overcomer, a conqueror. He has for them the privilege to sit with him on his throne. Can you imagine that? In our celebrity culture, you know, we go, some of us go crazy just to see a celebrity walk by and fawn over them and just to be next to them, just close to them. Let me just touch their hand and they just go crazy. But imagine the God of all that there is, the creator of the universe comes and not only wants to sit and sup with you and, and, and have an intimate meal with you, but he's like, come here, come sit with me. <laughs> come sit with me on my throne. Through our commitment and our faith, what that means is we get to reign with Christ. You and I are victors because he won. We already know the end of the story. And just as the son shares the throne with his father, we share, you and I, who follow Christ, who are obedient to him, uh, to follow him through faith alone, we get to be with him on his throne. How amazing is that? That's what we have to look forward to. You can collect all the money you want. You got the biggest house on the block, the fastest car. You could be the envy of all your friends and family. But that is nothing compared to sitting with Christ on his throne. That's what you and I have to look forward to. But until that day, we've got to remember that we serve Jesus, who's the king of kings and not the burger king. You can't have it your way. Brothers and sisters, don't settle for following God halfway. Don't be lukewarm. Give your all, give your everything, every moment of every day, give it to him. Because it's worth it. Be committed. We've got to repent. Let Christ fire you up, fire up your faith, and get into action. Go do something. Do what God called you to do. Be obedient to him. Turn to him right now. Turn to him daily. The master is knocking. Knocking on the door of this church. He's knocking at the door of your heart. Do you hear him? Will you let him in? Will you be obedient? Welcome him in. Will you welcome him into your church?
to his church. Lord, what a reality that we have here today just to look at our own lives and to inspect the fruit in it. I know there's so many areas where I fall short. and At this moment, I beg for your forgiveness. It's, it's, it's hard, it's challenging to turn away the pull of the flesh is, is so strong, but Father, help us to have the, the courage and the strength to put our all into following you. That we, we would actually be able to turn away from what this world provides and offers, and we turn to you, which provides full satisfaction. That we would think about spending forever and eternity with you, that we do so as heirs to your kingdom, as victors on your throne. Father, help us here today. Show us where we have fallen short. Show us where we have been lukewarm. Help us to hear your knock. And help us to do what you've required, what you've called us to do. Help us to live for you despite what earthly consequences there might be so that we can be with you for eternity. Father, we thank you so much for your graciousness and your love, for, for not cutting us off, but for uh, giving us your son, for dying in our place, paying the penalty that was meant for us so that we can live. Let us not take that for granted. And even now, as, as he sits on the throne and intercedes on our behalf, Father, we thank you for that as well. Thank you for the continued strength, the continued mercy that you provide. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray.